Well, good morning. Got up this morning, fixed my usual pot of Kona Blend ground fresh coffee, and checked my email on my iPad. And Doug hadn't said, "Don't show up." So, Doug, I'm I'm here. All right. I can't believe after after three weeks, you still want me to teach again? One more week? Golly. All joking aside, it's been a great honor to uh, be with you these last weeks, and uh, I have enjoyed it immensely. You're a you're a good people to teach. You know, any pastor will tell you, especially those that go to different places, you run into some congregations or groups where, boy, I'm glad that's over. Yeah, and then you go into run into others who uh, just make you want to keep teaching. And that's what y'all are like. And uh, in the time that Kathy and I have been with y'all, we have grown to love you all and enjoy our time together. All right, we are in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 today, as we look at our, our fourth study. Now, this is the continued section that Paul uses in the letter to set forth doctrinal issues that then starting in chapter 4 he will bring personal applications out of them. So we're still heavy into the doctrinal section even though we will make personal applications of it but next time anyone looks in Ephesians and you move on to the next section then it will be where he starts to make a practical application for how to make these things go together. So here we're looking at, uh, based on what's gone on in the previous chapters, in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, we've seen how God works in our salvation, and then we have seen the method of conversion or how he takes us from a sinner, as the old timers would say, a sinner condemned unclean, and brings us into a position of being right with God, forgiven of our sins, and justified of our sins so that God works with us in his plan that he has put forth for us according to his purpose and plan, according to his grace, his grace and according to his pleasure, as Paul says in those chapters. Now we're, we're looking now at one of the effects of the salvation God has done, which is changing things up that had never been changed before. And if we were back in that period of time, and we were in the, uh, the church that had to deal with this question when it first came up, we'd be kind of like a lot of the little churches in East Texas I used to pastor, and even in North Texas, that when you bring up an idea, you know what you hear, first thing you hear is, we never did it that way before. Now, none of you would ever do that, and I know that. I know none of you are like that, because none of you are really resistant to change, are you? You, you accept and deal with change. No, that, that's an issue some seniors have, but we're the exception to that rule, right? Amen. And so, uh, they, would, they had a lot of change. Paul starts a game-changing situation here. And if we were back in First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, our first Bible church of Jerusalem, we'd probably get together at the ministerial meeting and say, you understand what this guy Paul's trying to do to us? He's changing some things that I'm just not sure ought to be changed. He's taking Jews and Gentiles 
and saying, guess what? In Jesus, you're going to quit being a Jew, you're going to quit being a Gentile, and you're going to become one. The divisions are gone. Now, before you begin to raise hands and question my dispensational integrity, let me say to you that what I'm talking about today has nothing to do with prophetic plans that God put in place and using the nation of Israel as his chosen vehicle to bring forth his work into the world in the past and even into the end times. Daniel was given the 70 weeks. Daniel was given the truth about what God's going to do next and it's all going to be centered around what he does through the nation of Israel. But this is the game changer. Prior to this point... The Jews were proclaimers of a Messiah coming. And now the church becomes a proclaimer to Jew and Gentile alike. Messiah has come and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Now you see, that's a game changer. You have no idea in your world today, unless you were raised in a little rural Baptist church like I was, where there was prejudice ten feet deep, what it would be like for the Christians to say, you mean them Gentiles? For the Jews to say, who had been saved, you mean those Gentiles get to come to church? Can't we make a church for them so they don't have to come? You know... They don't eat like we do. They don't drink like we do. There's not really anything they do that's like us. How are we going to get together, Paul? I can't, can't you just hear the deacons meeting? Can't you just hear the committee meeting on church fellowship? Now, Paul, I'm not sure we can have these Gentiles coming into church. Just not sure that's going to work. And then Paul would say, why? Well, they'd have their reasons. Like I said, well, they don't eat like we do. They don't drink like we do. And, and you know, their bodies have not been prepared for worshiping God like ours has by the ceremonial circumcision when they were at the right age. How can we be with them when we are God's people and they're not? And so Paul begins to write in most all of the letters he writes after a certain point in the history of the church constantly about Jew and Gentile being made one in Christ. And this is one of the key passages to look at. So let's look together at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. As we look at the unity and peace of Christ. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who were called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world." Now, that is the reality of before Christ in each and every one of the believer's lives. Actually, both Gentile and Jew, but especially to the Gentile. 
Paul's describing here what it's like before Christ, and there was a division, Jew and Gentile. One was the covenant people of God that God was working through in all of time, even into our days in the future. And one was outside of the covenant of God. Now, did you ever think about what the covenant of God was? Now, there's some people whose theology is built around covenants. And they have what is sometimes just simply referred to as covenant theology. And, and if you have a good friend who's a staunch Presbyterian, and they still hold all the denominational trappings of being a dispensation, and they are schooled with all the teaching and training of the, of the churches in their Presbyterian circles, nine times out of ten, they're going to think about life in regards to covenants. We tend to think about dispensations. That word that we've heard taught about, and Dr. Stan teaches about it so masterfully. And we, you know, and God does work in different ways at different times, which is the essence of the dispensational concepts. But the whole issue is that he works through the coming of the Messiah and the announcing of the coming of Messiah in all dispensations. That's just basically what it is. Regardless of what dispensation there is, it doesn't change how God puts us right with him through the work of Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to get too far in the weeds on dispensationalism, I promise you. But even within our context, we understand that covenant was a part of God's work. In, in certain dispensations, the theme of that dispensation was largely around covenant. We had several covenants throughout the New Testament. And they all were given to the Jewish people until you get to the New Covenant where Jeremiah proclaimed. And that basically is across the board to all. So there was this division of people, Jew and Gentile. They had definite backgrounds. But then in the scripture here we have beginning with verse 13 and 14, a change. But, now in the Greek text... That's one of the strongest possible contrast words. It's a grammarian, if you want to look at it, it's a conjunction. It's joining what follows after what you just read to, to what comes next. And here he says, but. Think of that word as a red light to make you stop. But. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has established or abolished the law with all its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. Now, when it says in the text that he has abolished the law, he's not meaning he has said the Ten Commandments no longer are valid. No, 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 that's not at all it. But he has said basically that we cannot look to the law as what saves us. 
Paul makes it clear when he explains in the book of Galatians where the issue of the law versus the cross is even more detail given. He said in that book quite clearly that none of us are saved by the keeping of the law. I mean, that, that's a very plain statement in Galatians, you know. And when Paul talks in Galatians about, in the first chapters, the only right way to be saved, and then in the latter chapters, the only right way to live the Christian life, he does so in proclaiming that in Christ, it is not the law that makes you right. Now, notice the sphere of influence, the place where all this happens, in Christ Jesus. You see, both Jew and Gentile are made one, not through the United Nations. They're not made one by diplomatic efforts of the Secretary of State of the United States and the Foreign Ministry Secretary of Russia getting together with the parties and saying, let's all sit down at a round table so we're on equal footing and where we can talk. You ever seen how diplomats work? First of all, they'll sometimes get together and it's a rectangular table. And they'll say, no, we can't do this table because there's more room on your side than our side indicating that you have greater power because there's fewer of you to take it. So we call off this meeting and we go home. The shuttles go back and forth, you know. That's diplo speak for messaging back and forth. And then they say, well, why don't we just do a round table? Let's just do a round table. That way we're all on equal footing. So everybody says, okay, we'll go over the round table. And everybody gets together at the round table. Then they will find something else to argue about. Because diplomacy is nothing in the world but fancy arguing in case you ever want to look at a career in diplomacy. Um, it's a way of doing sneaky arguments. You ever had an argument with someone you didn't know you were arguing yet till you're halfway into it? That's a diplomat, you know. That's a diplomat. You know, okay. And so we're not just seeing that they're made one by diplomacy. They are made one by Christ Jesus or in Christ Jesus. Grammatically, that indicates this is the sphere in which this takes place. This is the location in which this takes place. It doesn't take place out of Christ. It takes place in Christ Jesus. And then we see in the text that it is by the blood of Christ. Or someone might say, in other words, the substitutionary death of Christ. Uh, what are we talking about there? We're talking about how that, as Paul said in the book of Corinthians in one passage, that he who had no sin, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we could become the righteousness of God in him. You see, he died on the cross. Now think about this for a second. What is the cause of death? Now let's go back to our Awana days and our vacation Bible school days and we immediately think, well, that's because of sin. Sin means you die. And we'd all say, yes, it is. Okay, was Jesus sinless? Yeah. So if he was sinless, how could he die physically? Oh, he could separate himself, God, with God's will for a short period of time so that the wrath of sin can be poured out upon him. But let's, let's be honest with some theological consistency here. 
He can't do it because of sin. It had to be another reason for him to die on the cross. And guess what? It was you and me and the fact that we couldn't get rid of our sins and we were not sinless. So Jesus said, I'll take your sins. Let's exchange things. You give me your sins, trusting me to take them away, and I'll give you my righteousness, my right standing with the Father, and I'll give you my forgiveness and everything else you need. I'll make you what you need to be if you'll just give me your sins. Some scholars call that the exchanged life when they're trying to talk about things. Exchanging my life for the life of Christ. Now, that's kind of what Paul means when he says here that it is by the blood of Christ that we are brought together. What we couldn't do on our own, going back to our definition of grace, grace is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves and what we need to have done. So we couldn't make this happen on our own. There's no way in the world you could ever get Jew and Arab to sit down and have a harmonious life. There's no way you could ever get Jew and Gentile or Jew and American to sit down and have a harmonious life. Because sin gets in the way of those kind of things. You ever met someone who is anti-Semitic? Yeah. My father-in-law was anti-Semitic. Now, he didn't quite hate the Jews more than he hated the blacks. But nevertheless, they were there. If he couldn't find the blacks to talk about, he'd talk about Jews. Every time the economy started having troubles and he was going to make some comments about the economy, uh, after he got through bashing certain political party, then he would say, uh, the president's wrong with that, and said, but of course, all the money is controlled by da-da-da-da-da-da. And he would go into his anti-Semitic rant. Jesus is the only way we overcome those kind of differences and prejudices. It was the only way it could be overcome in those days with man what a big change it was when Paul said uh, we're going to come together because Jesus is making us one. And it's a big change today when you and I see in a way we're worse because we're not only divided up Jew and Gentile, we're divided up Baptist and Methodist, and Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian, and Baptist and Methodist Presbyterian Assembly of God, and Pentecostal, and then the Baptists are divided up from Southern Baptist, Missionary Baptist, American Baptist, Hardshell Baptist, Primitive Baptist, and just Independent Baptist. And then some of those groups are divided up between King James only and certain translations are okay and on and on. And then some of those are also divided up among you can have Lord's Supper with us because you're enough like us. We can have good fellowship. But the rest of the time, it's a closed communion. And you'd ask questions about like that like when I was a little kid and, and, and one of the older deacons would get up and say... Young man, God has set forth certain landmarks that we must stay true to so we'll know where we're going. And I scratched my head and said, what's that got to do with why that Christian over there can't have the Lord's Supper with me? 
So you see, even the Baptists are so divided, much less all the other flavors we call ourselves. But thank God, we reflect what God says in the Bible. There are no denominations. There's only a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And only becoming what the church is meant to be, the fellowship of believers who have trusted nothing and no one else but Christ for their salvation and clings to God's word as the only revelational source we have for truth and knowledge. So you see, the world is no different than it was back then. We're divided up just like they were. And God wants there to be peace. It says that he has made us to have peace in the text we just read. What is peace? Some would say that peace is cessation of hostilities. Well, can you not be at peace even though you're not at war? You ever known a couple that kind of fussed and fought in war in their home? But they never let on to the outside world that there was anything wrong? And on the inside, it was hell on earth, but they never let it be known on the outside world. That's not peace, is it? That's not an end to hostilities. Oh, oh they're not calling the divorce lawyer, and they're not bringing accusations in public, and they're not calling the police on each other, but there's not a cessation to hostilities. Oh, they start out sometimes, all they do is watch TV and never talk. Then sometimes it moves to where they watch TV in different rooms because they like different shows. And on and on. But to the outside world, there's peace. But in reality, there is open hostility going on. So you see, peace can't be defined by the ending of hostility. What peace, I think, is defined as is harmonious friendship with God and one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. When I come to Christ, I can have peace with anyone I may be at odds with, depending on whether or not the other party wants to have peace. And Paul even recognized that some people are difficult to work with when he says at one time, have peace among all together as is within you. When Paul said, have peace with everyone as you, uh, you can as long as it's within you, that kind of meant when, when that old so-and-so won't be peaceful, there's nothing you can do about it. You do all your part, though, to have peace. And God will take care of the rest. So we have peace with God then in the next verses. It explains that in greater detail in verses 16 through 18. Look at that if you would for me. That he might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And that's referring to the Gentiles who were far off away from the covenant. And then the ones that were near would be the Jewish faith, the Jewish people, who were in the covenant waiting for this to happen and just hadn't caught on to the fact that it happened in Jesus. And he proclaimed peace to both groups. 
For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So you see, by Christ's death upon the cross, we are reconciled to God, whether we're Jew or Gentile. We're brought from wherever we are, near or far, as the terms he used in the text there, and we're brought to one place through the cross. We're brought to God. And he did it through the giving of his son Jesus and his shed blood upon the cross to make that happen. And we also have access to God. That's an important thing. Some students of world religions come up with different categories on how to define the differences between world religions and different groupings. And uh, I was reading a book one day several years ago and this scholar said, one sure way you can tell the difference between the groups, between those who are truly biblical-based and those that are not biblical-based or just tradition-based, is what do they teach about a believer's ability to have access to God? See, if I, I still have to go through some person, even though it's designated by God to be a person, it's not the same thing as what the Bible teaches, is that when I come to faith in Christ and accept him as my Lord and Savior, I'm able to go straight to God. You ever think about what that means to you? You don't have to have an in-between between you and God. Some old scholars in certain traditions used to call this doctrine the pre doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, indicating that you have the capacity to go straight to God yourself through Jesus Christ. Now, can other people pray for you through intercessory prayer and minister to you through their spiritual gifts, as Chuck started explaining today with that? Of course. And that is beneficial and helpful. But you have the capacity to go straight to God and deal with things with him. 1 John 1, 9 makes a beautiful sense when he says, if we will confess our sins to God. Now, confessing sins doesn't necessarily mean naming them and listing them. Confessing our sins means agree with God about it. It comes from a Greek word, homo, meaning to say, legeon, the same thing, homo legeon, to speak the same thing, say the same thing. It's a word that is oftentimes used as a witness in the legal system of the old days, in the Greek times. And it really means, I need to say the same thing God says about the sin I'm repenting of. That is what puts you back on the correct fellowship with God, is when you point to the sin you have done and agree with God about it. And then God is able to cleanse you with another miracle of our salvation in Christ. He ongoingly forgives. He ongoingly cleanses. He ongoingly keeps me right with the Father. And therefore, we have this kind of access I have sin in my life. Am I cut off forever? Do I have to go back to uh, start with square one on trusting Jesus as my Lord and Savior and learn everything I should have learned or did learn that I didn't pay attention to? No. I go back to what is the root cause. I was disobedient to what God said, and I have to tell God, you're right. Such and such is not what you want. I agree with you. 
that that is not of your will. That is wrong. That is not right. And then the Bible says there in 1 John, he cleanses us. He forgives us. The relationship, the fellowship is restored as it ought to be. Not the position of being in Christ, but the fellowship and flow back and forth between me and God is once again restored without interruption. So we have this access with God. And then finally, in verses 19 through 22, we're going to start to look at the implications of Christ's peace. Let's read those. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. One of the things that we need to do as one of the implications of what has happened in Christ is that we need to fully understand and know why we are a saint. Now, the word saint's an interesting word. It's the most common word used in the Greek text to describe a believer. Believer is used sometimes, but the most common term that is used to describe us as believers is we are saints. We're referred to as saints. Not the football team in New Orleans, but we're referred to as saints. And not someone without sin and achieving high spiritual power and miraculous events occurring through us. But the word saint in the New Testament means simply this. A saint is someone who is set apart for God's use. So how should you think about yourself as a believer? Well, one of the things you need to get down good into your mind is that you are a person set aside for God's use because you've come to Christ. See, there's no such thing as a believer, whatever their age or whatever their condition do not have purpose and meaning and plan. Because you are a saint. You're set apart for God's use. I, uh, in my early days as a young pastor, I had a pastor who was in the church that I had come to pastor. My first church, little small church in East Texas and Henderson, Texas. And Robert Rook was his name. He was a bivocational pastor that helped pastor the church for years and years. He was a house mover, strong, muscular, hands that when you shook them, you said, was that a hand or was it sandpaper? You know, it, it, it was in strong, was that a hand or was it a pair of pliers I got a hold of? You know, he, he was a mountain of a strong guy. Uh, used to be in the OSS in World War II behind the lines. And so uh, his hands first were created to be hard like that because he would condition them through what they would do to condition their hands to be hard so that they'd be like a weapon. And uh, he and I became close. He would talk to me all the time about what he's doing this week. You know, sometimes when you're a pastor and you have a former pastor in the church, it's always not always comfortable. But boy, he was he was a blessing to me. I'd, I'd get together with him and he'd say, Chuck, 
let me tell you what I'm doing this week. And he talked about who he's praying for and, and what he's doing here. And uh, he'd say, now, what do I need to pray for you for? What are you going to be doing this week that I can pray for you? And on and on. It was just a great fellowship. And then the day came that he called me up and said, I've just been announced to have stage four cancer in the abdomen. And um, I talked with him. We went to the doctor together. And the doctor said, there's really nothing we can do. We can try a little bit of treatment. The cancer is inoperable because where it's at and how widespread it is. Uh, in fact, I remember the doctor saying, I've never seen a cancer in the abdomen area grow as fast as yours has grown and so widespread. There's virtually every organ in the abdomen area was affected by this cancer. And um, he told him, he said, we'll, we'll try some uh, chemotherapy but we're not going to do a bunch because I don't think it'll do any good. And Robert said, yes, go ahead. So they did it. It wasn't but a month or two that he was no longer able to stay at home, and he had to be permanently housed in a uh, rehab center. In the old days, we used to call them nursing homes, but I know now we don't do that. But uh, he was in the, uh, the uh, he would call it nursing home, and uh, I'd come see him every week. Every week when I came there, he would call a different nurse or orderly in, and he would say, I want you to meet my pastor. And he would say, I, I led so-and-so here to the Lord this week, pastor, and I want you to meet them. Every week he was introducing me in that nursing home, part of the staff that he led to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior while he was dying with cancer. God, what a... What a testimony of a walk with God regardless of circumstances. Every week. I remember going to the hospital one day and his, his muscles had already deteriorated and his legs couldn't stay straight. They just come up like that. Just come up like that. Folded back up to his body. And uh, couldn't get up anymore. Everything's inside the bed. But even in that time, he would tell me, I want you to pray for so-and-so. They're not here today, but I talked to them about Jesus, and they are not yet ready, but they will be. Now, of all the things you can say about Robert Rook, the one thing you can say is he understood what it meant to be a saint. He understood what it meant to be as God's child set apart for God's use and there's no time limiter or expression of expiration on when God can quit using you. We are also, we find in those verses, in verse 20 especially, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now to be quite blunt about that, through the years as I've read different commentaries on that verse, because it's a powerful verse to understand, and, and the different times I've preached through Ephesians in my life, over and over the commentaries seem to divide between, are we talking about the original 12 apostles, or are we talking about uh, current day apostles, that the apostleship would be a gift that continued on and they would make the cases on both sides you know I really think it's the original 12 apostles and the original prophets of the Old Testament and the reason I think that but it really comes to the same conclusion whichever position you take 
Where did you get your Bible from? Did it come from mere opinions of men? Or did God use prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles and those they ministered and tutored and developed to be the instruments that he gave the inspiration of Scripture to so that we could get in our hands the words he wanted? Yeah, they can be electronic or they can be paper. They're still the words God wanted. That's why I can trust them. So we are built together on a foundation of truth that is not Johnny-come-lately is what I'm trying to say. It is a foundation of truth that began with a core group of men called out by God to take his truth to his people. And then from his people that truth is to go on even further. We are built on that foundation. And then finally, we are joined together, made into a temple, a household. And you know, the illustration that we find there in verse 21, it says, In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Now think about it. My little grandson, and if you're going to do the Comstock stuff, you're going to have a first grader named Titus Vipperman. He'll talk your arm off. I mean, talk your arm off. But he's into Legos. Anybody got a grandson that's into Legos or granddaughter's into Legos? They're always building things, aren't they? Come let me show you, Pop, all what I made today, you know. And he's always building things. Now, that didn't come out of nowhere. It came out of his brilliant little mind because he takes after his Papa so much. And he figured out how to be creative, which is another thing his Papa's got. My goodness, this boy is just a walking, talking Chuck Vance. And, and, and he, he's there... Now, you can't tell I'm proud of my grandson, I know. Uh, but here he, he's showing me all the things he came up with. And I said, well now, John, uh, Titus, how did you get a plane that's got the tail of a dragon? Well, I just thought it would be neat to let a dragon become a plane so that you'd have the tail that could shoot things out. I said, Okay. And on and on. Anything you want to ask him about why he built what he built. And of course he didn't build anything like it looks on the box. They all were Titus's way of doing it. <coughs> That's another thing he took after his grandpa. On. And, um, but there was no, you know, out of nothing it happens and it's just an accident. It occurred on purpose. When it talks about building something and the church being built by God, it tells us that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not an accidental happening. It's not just a social grouping brought together. And in that social grouping brought together because of common interest that uh, they find something to do. You know, my hobby and my interest is shooting guns. I hope that doesn't scare some of you. And, and uh, so I've, I don't have a golf club membership, but i got a gun club membership. And so I go to that gun club, and everybody that's there on the range and in the store looking at the, it's like a pro shop, but it's a gun shop, same thing. 
If you you know, think country club with golf, it's the same thing with the Frisco Gun Club. It's a country club for guns and shooters. We all have the same interest. All have the same interest. We're brought together because we have a commitment to the same kind of thing. And um, God takes us and our coming to him and then begins to work in our lives so that he can place us where he wants us to be in his work in the church. Now, we are to be in the household of God corporately, I believe. I don't believe a church attendance and a church membership is optional. I used to have old boys that would tell me years ago, I don't need church. I can worship God underneath that tree out there and probably do better than with you bunch of hypocrites. Well, in some cases, he's right. There's a bunch of us hypocrites in the church that get in the way of someone coming to God sometimes. But he was wrong about the fact he could do just as good. He would be limited on what he could do by not being in the fellowship with other like-minded believers, submitting themselves together to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the authority of God's word. You see, it's not optional for you to be joined together in fellowship. So being a part of Marathon and a part of Stonebriar Community Church is not just a choice you made. It's the will of God. That you be joined together with other believers in fellowship and service to the Lord Jesus Christ under the authority of God's word. And you never become what you're meant to be as the temple of God built up to be what he wants it to be unless you take advantage of that scenario. We are joined together not just in Christ but we're also joined together corporally. Now, if you're a scholar, like I know some of you are, you know that there's a whole bunch of stuff in that text I didn't touch. And the reason is I have to quit right now so that we can go get lunch. I don't know if you want to go get lunch, but I want to go get lunch, so we have to quit. But I would say again, I've enjoyed being with you guys so much the last few weeks and look forward to hearing Brother Wayne again as he feeds me as well as you in the days ahead. So thank you for letting us be together at this time and uh, whoever needs to take over, take over. Chuck, I would like to speak on behalf of the class to say thank you. Your, your lessons from God's Word have been very good. Very good. Those of you who want to meet with Margaret about the luncheons or the Koinea uh, efforts now, please let's use this left-hand corner over here in the front at that time. The rest of you have a good day, and we'll see you the next time. God bless you.